Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Homecoming. It's actually the last episode of season one, so the season finale of Homecoming, a podcast that provides the space for Asians and Asian Americans of all backgrounds to share their diverse stories, experiences, and insights about a variety of different topics. I'm your host, Angel Rena, and today in this episode, I am featuring Simi Shaw, who graduated from Harvard a couple of years ago and has experience working in both the finance and media industries. And so today she's going to be sharing what it was like to be a woman of color in finance and also just the really cool projects and work she's been involved with in the media space. So hi, Simi. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Super excited for our conversation. Um, would you be able to first introduce yourself to the listeners just so they have a sense of who you are? Yeah, well, first off, thanks so much for having me, Angel Rena. Um, a little bit about myself. As you said, I'm Simi. I am originally from Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, so Southern born and raised. I graduated from Harvard last year after studying economics and government. Uh, Post-college, went to work in private equity at a firm called Audax in Boston. Recently left that role in early March to, as you said, pursue a role in media. On the side, involved with a ton of different organizations, uh, both women in finance organizations like Girls Who Invest and the Synergist Network, as well as the Harvard Asian Alumni Association and a number of other organizations like South Asian Trailblazers, which I think we'll talk about. Uh, so really excited to be here and and hopefully share a little bit of my story and some insights that might be useful to people. Yay, awesome. Yeah, again, super excited. I feel like we have a lot of like very fascinating topics um, that I personally am just like super excited to talk about um, because, yeah, I mean, I think for me and for other listeners out there, it's just, it would be really useful and really cool to just learn more about you and like your experience in finance and media um, from someone who was a woman of color in that space and is specifically a South Asian woman of color in that space. Um, so yeah, just I think first to set up some context for our main conversation, I wanted to ask you, like when you were growing up and also while you were in high school or at Harvard, were you always set on pursuing a specific career or going into a particular industry? Um, and also, like, did you feel any sort of pressure from peers at Harvard or from your family to pursue a specific career? Yeah, that's a great question. So I grew up immersed in the hotel hospitality business. My family um, immigrated, my parents immigrated here in the 1980s. Um, went into working as uh, engineers. And then my dad eventually left that role because he decided he wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, so ended up taking up a family business in the hotel space with his brother and brother-in-law. And so I grew up with kitchen and dinner table conversations about this. And so business and entrepreneurship had always been the focal point of my family. I think for some people, it's like their parents are doctors, healthcare is something that they've always been interested in. But for my sister and I, that's just kind of how we grew up. My sister actually grew up living in a days in hotel. So just my whole growing up and upbringing experience was ripe with these experiences and conversations about what it's like to be in business. So I always knew that was something that was of interest but business can mean a lot of things. And I don't even think I fully knew that um, until I really got to college. But when I was in high school, I did a number of summer internships. And one of the most profound ones for me was I did an internship at a hotel motel franchising company called America's Best Value Inn. And it doesn't exist anymore. Um, and I was a 10th grader, like 10th grader at the time. I didn't know much what was going on. But I really enjoyed the experience, but I also spent a good chunk of the summer just like reading a ton of media and journalism online. Like I had this entire notebook dedicated to different ideas for stories or pieces that I could write um, and inspiration. I think that for me is like the seedling point of where I started to see this juxtaposition in my life of being interested in business, being interested in media. When I got to Harvard, Again, I still didn't really know what that looked like. Um, and I joined a number of different organizations from women in business to the Harvard Financial Analyst Club. And um, I got pretty intimidated by the latter because I realized I knew nothing about finance as, as a freshman coming in and was like, what is this world? And eventually found my way to an organization called Girls Who Invest, which really served as my formative education into what finance means. And it just seemed like 
if business was something that I wanted to do, whether that meant I wanted to be in my own business, continuing my family's hospitality business, going to be a media operator or being an investor, having that baseline of technical knowledge was super important and can serve you no matter what space you're in, just understanding like how to read a financial statement, whether it's for your personal or not. So that's how I got kind of interested in, in that space. And I, I really didn't know finance was going to be the track within the business world until I really got to Girls Who Invest. In terms of pressure from Harvard peers, I never felt that way. Um, I think it's not pressure, but it's an environment of highly successful, high-achieving people who are often as a product of, I don't know, the institution or the kinds of companies that come and recruit there are very much pushed into a couple of buckets. I'm sure you're familiar with them. Um, it's a lot of consulting. It's a lot of tech. It's a lot of finance. Um, so I didn't feel pressured per se, but I think it was just, that's what I saw around me. It seemed like a very natural path. It seemed like a stable path. Um, and so I think that's why to some degree I ended up sticking on with this path in finance. And it's interesting because at Harvard, it's actually a pretty small, small percentage of people that go into finance, but it was just one of those things that was heavily on my radar. Um, and I think part of the reason I ended up sticking with it post-grad. And you mentioned um, Girls Who Invest, and I've actually started seeing like info sessions and stuff pop up for that program. Can you explain like what Girls Who Invest is, what the program was like for you, and do you feel like it potentially changed your perspective on the finance industry after you did it? Absolutely. So Girls Who Invest is a program that's dedicated to 30 by 30. And what that means is having women manage 30% of global assets by the year 2030. The whole idea being that out of college, a very common path for just undergrads and definitely women who pursue finance is going into the investment banking industry, um, which I have a ton of friends in. I actually spent a summer in. I think it's an incredible learning opportunity, but I do think finance broadly and banking also do have reputations for leading to burnout. So a lot of women would have the tendency to go do a couple years there and then just leave the industry in the whole. And so Girls Who Invest came in with this mission saying, hey, you know, if we can get women to buy side finance first versus sell side, which is what investment banking is, maybe we can retain them. Like maybe we can move women up just from the junior levels and convince them to stay for the next 5, 10, 20 years and be the women who are actually managing these assets, be the investors. Uh, to be honest, when I joined Girls Who Invest, I could not have told you what the difference between sell-side and buy-side finance was. I was just, I went to a liberal arts school. I knew business was something that I was interested in. I really got the impression that understanding, like I said earlier, how to read financial statements, what private equity versus venture capital versus investment banking is, those are important things to know. Um, in life to some degree. And so that program really was an educational experience. And what it consisted of was 60 women on campus at Penn. For one month, we went to class basically eight hours a day together, learning basic financial concepts, all the way to how to negotiate a salary or what are some professional presentation tips. Um, our end project was pitching um, a company and putting this like investment deck together. We did ours on Urban Outfitters, which was a ton of fun. We got to visit Urban Headquarters. Um, and then the second part of the experience, the next five weeks of the summer, they actually place you at a buy-side asset management internship. And so I worked at a place called Wellington in their fixed income group. Again, new could not have told you what fixed income meant. It's, it's in the realm of bonds, but was just a, a very formative experience in terms of, oh, like this is this thing that's been fairly nebulous up to this point, and now I have a little bit more of a grasp around it. I think in terms of how it shaped my perception of the financial industry, I, I just mentioned earlier that I joined the Harvard Financial Analyst Association or club my freshman year of college. Very heavily male-dominated, not very diverse, and I actually quit the comp process, which is where you kind of, it's called competency, I don't know why, but it's basically where you like go through this process to join the club. And I actually quit it a couple weeks in because, not because I was intimidated by the population in the room, but I was like, wow, like I just feel like I know way less than these people. And so to some degree, girls who invest ended up being the substitute for that of 
how can I become financially literate and potentially pursue this path while feeling like it's okay to know nothing? Um, so I think with respect to that, it fostered a great environment. I think the second half of that is the people. Um, finance generally is an industry that's known as the boys club. Um, and it happens all the time. It's just a heavily male dominated industry. It has been for many years. Changing it is going to take time and progress has certainly been made. But for me to, and before even really entering that industry, have 59 other women that I could talk to and be like, hey, like, how do I do this formula in Excel? Or, hey, like, what roles are you looking into? Or what's your experience like? Or, hey, like, we did this program together. You're just a friend. I just know you and talk to, want to talk to you. I think made a huge difference for me. And it's a group of people that I continue to be very close to. I've lived with some of them. I talk to some of them every single week. Some of them I talk to once a year, but it's like we pick up right where we left off. And having that community, I think, has given me a ton of confidence and made me feel like I really have a base to go back to here. And I think served as a lot of the confidence and motivation to pursue a role in the industry longer term. And do you feel like the girls who invest, like after you did that program, that was sort of the turning point where you were like, yeah, like I can go into the finance industry and like be successful even as like a woman of color. Yeah, I don't think I had doubts in terms of a representation perspective before Girls Who Invest, but I think the barriers to entry I felt was knowing nothing. And I think part of that was, like I said, going to a liberal arts school where I studied economics and government and stacking that up against people who were actually studying finance in undergrad and who knew the difference between these terms I had never heard of. Um, but I think it is what made me, I, I think it, regardless has been an empowering community. Like I, I think it's a tough industry to work in for, for reasons different from many other industries. I think it can be pretty grueling, but you learn a ton, um, but there can be a lot of sink or swim culture. It's a lot of learning on the job. And for me, like I said, it's, I think having that community of people who are like, I mean, I've, I've had friends call me and be like, oh my gosh, like, I don't know what I'm doing. I think I'm going to get fired. Like, I don't know what to do. I've had that conversation with other people of like, I don't know what I'm doing. And to be able to have that open of a conversation with people in the same boat is so valuable. Um, and not something that I think I could have just found like at Harvard or in an internship. This was just like a steady state group of people that we could constantly go back. I could constantly go back to. So I think with respect to that, it did shape it over time of like, I'm not alone in feeling like this. Um, and there are people who also are, are willing to share in this experience. And I think just having that validated of like, yeah, I just graduated college. I don't know that much. It's okay to not that much just goes a long way in developing a comfort with the job that you're working in and the industry that you're pursuing a role in. And then um, I believe like after you graduated, um, you started working in, in finance, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, yeah, like when you were in that industry, what was your experience like, um, at your specific company or firm? And also just like, what, it, what, what was it like from your perspective as, as a woman of color and specifically a South Asian woman? Um, it doesn't need to be specifically that, but like, you, you know, feel free to share your experience in general. Um, yeah. And just feel free to share personal experiences or any stories that you may have? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I graduated, I went to work in private equity in Boston. Um, and honestly, it was an amazing learning experience. As I said earlier, I left in March and, and we can get to that. Um, to no fault of finance or the firm itself. Um, I think in terms of my experience being a woman of color, um, I was one of very few and I think it's I think it's interesting because I think a lot of these firms are trying to progress the conversation not just the firm I'm at but there's a whole cohort of them there's a lot of organizations dedicated to especially advancing women in this industry which I think is sweet but even over the course of partaking in organizations like Girls Who Invest and and taking part in um, other finance internships over the years in my full-time role like you still notice that even the majority of women in this industry are white. Um, so for me, there was this added dimension of being a woman of color, hearing and trying to partake in these conversations around diverse hiring and what that looks like. And Asian American women are not 
underrepresented in this industry either um, by any means. So in terms of, in terms of my experience within it, I think it can be, it can be a little bit of a, I think to my point on girls who invest, I think part of the reason I've gone back to that community is having people that look like me, having people that I can confide in with respect to that, that I didn't always find within the workplace. Um, but that being said, I think, I think one of the, one of the worst pieces of advice I've ever heard from someone I asked kind of in this seat of, okay, what has been your experience being a woman of color in this industry is like, oh, I just don't let it affect me. Like, if you don't think about it, you'll be fine. Like, it's, it's not about, like, you just can't make it about that. And I'm like, that's great. Like, it's great that, but like, it seems like a pretty privileged thing to say, probably because you were able to just more easily overcome those barriers. Maybe not, but for me, like, recognizing a part of my identity is important and recognizing that it shapes a role in how I'm treated or how this industry operates is also important. And so I think I try to always emphasize that, yeah, like I don't think it's something that necessarily is a barrier. I don't think it was one for me, but I do think it makes you more conscious of the community that's around you, whether people look like you um, and, and what the opportunities could be for you in terms of helping advance that for other people. I think that's where I felt some of the burden sometimes was, I wanted to be doing more for people that were underrepresented. I felt like the onus was on me to do that. And as we know, it shouldn't be that way. Um, and so trying to navigate doing this job that's, you know, where I'm working 80, 90 hours a week while also trying to like add in this extra labor of contributing to that effort became a little bit taxing to some degree, especially because I didn't always know how to navigate having that conversation in a room full of people that didn't look like me. Um, but I will say, I think the industry is starting to listen a lot more. I think they're realizing that it's to their benefit to have more diverse individuals. I think the problem is they don't know where to start. And so whenever I would speak up in those conversations, I found that people would be listening to me, which was sadly surprising, but obviously a good thing. I was like, yeah, people are like heed what I have to say. Cause I'm one of the few women of color in the room. And that's a really powerful feeling um that that I certainly appreciated and wish I had honestly done more with in my time in the industry um I also am wondering like totally okay if you if you don't really have very many thoughts about this because it's kind of a big question but like do you have any thoughts about why the finance industry is so heavily dominated by males <laughs> It's the, the million dollar question. I don't, like from a historical perspective, I don't know that I'm informed enough to answer that. My guess is a couple of things. I think it's just wealth for a very long time has been managed by the few, not the many. I think that few tends to be more privileged sets of people in the historical context of the United States and the world, which often tends to be men and within that realm, white men. And let me preface that by saying, like, they're great white men. Like, I've had some of the best mentors in white men. But that's not to say that there aren't barriers to entry that have been created as a result of this, of this institutionalized, like, the institutionalization of having these particular people in power over long periods of time. I think in the modern context, some of the reasons are... Um, it's a grueling industry and not to say that women can't or shouldn't put up with that. I think women are just like, Hey, I'm super valuable. I have a lot of intellect. I could go do something that's like not only more fulfilling, but I could probably be getting paid more and have a life. I'm going to leave. And I think that's a little bit of the point of some of the organizations I was mentioning earlier is like trying to prevent this burnout in the early stages. So people, women make it to mid and senior levels, but that's a lot of the conversation we were having was like, there are some firms where at the junior level, you'll see 10, 15 women, which is pretty promising for the industry in the context of say they have like 50 people on the team. So not great on the whole, but it's, it's progress. And then you get to the mid level and it shrinks more. And then you get to the senior level and there's like one and you're like, why is this happening? And people are like, oh, it's an evolution. Like the junior process has just started over the last five to 10 years. So it'll take another five to 10 years for us to get there. Some people argue 
no, 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 no. Like that's not happening. Like they're leaving before they get to that point. So I think the industry is going to be due for a reckoning of how do you retain women? Because also the fact of the matter is like women often do want to have families and they, because of that reason, like they leave the workforce. And a lot of these industries are very like, they reward workhorse culture. Like you're in the office 90 hours a day and, or you're not you know, or, or you're not working in this industry. Um, some of the experiences that have been shared with me and that I've even seen myself are a, f- a senior male at the company has a child, like his wife has a child. He's back in the office three days later, which is crazy. And it's, it's totally normalized. And I think that's part of the issue because like that could not be the case for a woman. It would be crazy, but that's still an expectation for men when men too are like, no, I would like like a couple months off to be with my child and be with my family. And so that goes back to issues of like paternal leave and family leave and all these things like this. But I think there's just a lot of mindset adjusting that has to be done. Like another conversation that's been happening within the industry is okay, like, and tech has already started doing this. They're paying for women to freeze their eggs. People are like, oh, this is awesome. Like, great, like supporting women. It's like, wait a second. Like, this is also kind of oppressive by by nature because you're basically telling women for you to stay and succeed, you need to delay having children. And we're going to help you delay having a family rather than finding actually creating a solution to the problem, which is why don't we make it possible for you to have a family and a child and like your male counterparts and stay at work and continue to advance in your career the same way that you would have. And so I think that's a reckoning that we're due for across industries. But I think those are some of the small things where people put a bandaid on a problem. People perceive it as this massive win. And it's like, wait, take a step back. What is the actual impact of this? What message are you sending to women and men and, and, um, non-gendered folks across the industry. Sorry, non-binary folks across the industry. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for talking about that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the finance industry just has so many different stereotypes. And I mean, like even last year, my freshman year, when I first went to college, there were sort of like, you know, I, I like it's not as as clear cut as like a binary, but then there were definitely those like, finance people. And then there were those people who were just like anti-finance, like so hard, you know what I mean? And so, I mean, when you were decide, when you decided to go into finance and, you know, sort of be in that space, like what was your experience just grappling with those stereotypes? That is a fantastic question. Um, when I was at Harvard, the, the, classic nomer was calling people snakes when they were pursuing consulting or finance. I'm sure you've heard it. And I remember having an in-depth conversation with a couple of friends who um, I think were like gov majors, had done a ton of public policy internships, uh, really wanted to go into public service, but also were like, I want to provide for myself and my family and pursue a stable career. And over the years, I've started to develop a very, a much more complex perception of that. Um, I think it's a little, I hear what people are saying, like finance is a problematic industry in many ways. It's a bastion of privilege. I get that. I, I partook in it. I enjoyed the experiences that I've had. I've learned a ton from it, grown a lot from it, benefited from the privilege it's given me. That being said, like, I think you have to dig a little bit deeper behind people's motivations as to why they're pursuing this. I think for me, I grew up in a family where my dad came to this country with $8 in his pocket and was able to provide everything that my sister and I needed without question. I've never really felt wanting for anything in my life. And even if maybe my parents are struggling with it, they don't share that with us. And I think that's a very heavy immigrant mentality to make sure that your kids have everything. That's why they risked everything to come here in the first place. So for me, having, even though I grew up in a time where my parents had achieved relative stability, it was important to me to continue to cultivate that stability. And I think paths like finance, consulting, all these things to some degree afforded me that compared to other things I might've pursued. Now for me, it's also, I just had 
nascent interest in it. I think finance is interesting. I think markets are interesting. I love learning about businesses and the people behind them. I think innovation is so key, like, et cetera, et cetera. But I think with respect to grappling with that stereotype, I think in college, I was fortunate enough largely to be surrounded by people that understood that. They were like, I get it. They're like, I don't think you're a horrible person for pursuing this industry. Like, I think you're interested in it. You're genuinely interested in it. And you have maybe these other motivations that we've talked about or we haven't talked about. Um, And so I think that's how I learned to internalize being okay with it. I think also at a base value, I, I didn't really see it as like, this is completely horrible. Um, because I think for me, a lot of the perspective I went in, like I said, was through girls who invest. And so to me, it felt like going into this industry, I was in some ways challenging a norm. I was a woman of color entering it. Like I said, Asian American women, not necessarily as underrepresented as other minorities, but still I was like, I'm kind of breaking a barrier by doing this. And if I don't do it because it doesn't like, it, it was more about, I, I think I had a little bit more of a focused mindset with respect to that of, I can also hopefully eventually pay that forward for other women who want to pursue this industry. So I, I think that that was kind of the manifold perspective I took. I do know I have a ton of other friends that struggled with this and continue to struggle with, with it. And the other thing that I try to tell them is, look, to some degree, for a lot of you, this is temporary. This is a means to an end. You're trying to get kind of like, you know, you're trying to get some good experience on your resume, hard skills, because again, we went to a liberal arts institution and a lot of us didn't study CS or something that was technically applicable day one. And then you're probably going to use that knowledge and that experience to go do the thing that you really want to do. That's much more meaningful and impactful in the world. I, I sincerely believe that. Um, for, you know, and did believe that not just for myself, but for my friends who are grappling with this. And that's what I always try to remember is what you're doing today is not necessarily what you're going to be doing in 10 years. Um, it might be if you like it a ton. I mean, that, and that's awesome. But I think that's the important thing to remember. Gotcha. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and you also mentioned that you left your specific firm and you left finance uh, back in March. Um, why did you decide to do that? Why did you decide to leave? And were there any like specific realizations or observations you made while working in finance that made you want to do that? Yeah. So I think for me, I, like I said earlier, to some degree stumbled, I always come back to girls who invest, but I stumbled a little bit into finance. Um, and I found it really interesting. And then I think doing eight to 10 weeks internships versus doing eight to 10 months in real life of a job are very different. Like I said, I learned a ton. I made some great friends. Um, I think I getting, learning how to wear the investor hat and observe businesses and trends in the world is something that I have found has translated to many other walks of my life, including the current role that I'm in. Um, so I, I appreciate that. I just, like I told you that story about when I was in 10th grade, when I was working that internship and I had this entire notepad writing things of ideas I could write about. I participated in a bunch of writing contests in high school. Writing became my thing. Then I came to college and I wrote here and there blog posts and things like that, but it fell off. But I think it was always in the back of my head. Some part of me was like, maybe I'd pursue journalism. I don't know. Um, And it just became amply clear to me that I do not have the kind of personality to just wait things out. Um, Not that it's a lack of patience, but I was like, I wasn't loving what I was doing. And I felt this nagging feeling towards media. And I was like, it's kind of now or never. Like, I don't know when else in my life I'm going to be in a stage where I can feel comfortable taking this kind of risk, both like leaving my job potentially doing something that's not as lucrative or stable, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, you know, I, I've done this. I've been working the 80, 90 hour work weeks. And I want to, I'd rather be dedicating that time to a passion area or in a field that I'm more excited about. And it just became so clear to me that that was media. And I had a lot of friends in my ear who supported me throughout that process of me navigating what that was. They're like, Simi, I wouldn't tell you to quit or leave if it wasn't for the fact that it, there's it's 
you have such a clear idea in mind of what you want to do next. They're like, most people want to leave, but they don't know what next looks like. They're like, you like have a focus area. Um, and I, I think the other beautiful thing is I really have found an intersection of my interests. Like I think news and media at the intersection of markets and business is really fascinating to me. Um, I, I enjoy writing about it. I enjoy reading about it. And so pursuing a role with respect to that was really exciting to me was where I got to combine these two hats that I had worn over the past number of years. Yeah, I'm sure that must have been like a really scary time period of time. And like, just, it must have been so frightening to think about leaving, you know, like, a somewhat stable industry and a somewhat stable um, job that you had. But I think that's like, I think, what what you're explaining can be somewhat of a relief to listeners out there who are sort of in, in your similar position. Um, but can you also talk about, um, I mean, you mentioned earlier how you were very interested in media early on, even in high school, but what were like the draws of the media industry specifically for you? And do you feel like um, when you were in high school and at Harvard, like, doing specific creative endeavors like did that contribute to your want to pursue media as well absolutely so i think first i'll touch on what you just said in terms of providing that relief it is a scary thing to do i was terrified it took me a lot of time to really get to the point of i'm gonna go do this i'm gonna quit and go pursue what i'm really passionate about i don't think it's an easy thing to do i think I had a lot of things going for me that not everyone has um, in terms of, you know, having parents that were really supportive of the move and things like that. So I encourage everyone to weigh that carefully. Like don't stick in a place where you're not as happy as you think you could be. Um, but I also recognize it's, it's not a tough decision and not one that everyone can make with respect to the draws of media. When I was in, when I was in like elementary and middle school, I was like an artist. That was my thing. I used to love drawing. And um, I was like, that was like my thing that people knew me for. And then I got to this point where I was like, wow, I just spent a lot of time on this to actually be really good. And I don't even think I'm like that good. And so I just kind of like gave that up and I moved on. And people were like, I don't even know how the transition happened. This was like literally elementary, middle school. When it got to writing, um, like I said, in, in high school where I just started being like language arts classes and history and humanities classes, I was just, that was my strength. And it was something that very much flowed out of me. It was not something I had to spend hours on. Um, I, not to say I'm, I'm, you know, a Pulitzer Prize winning writer, but it was, it was easy. It was fun. It was challenging, but in a stimulating way. And I just like knew I had found it. I was like, there are so few things in the world that make me feel this way. Um, and I think maybe cause I had that drawing comparison. I was like, no, 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 like this is it. This is it. So when I was in high school, I wrote a column for an Indian American magazine based out of Atlanta every month. I would write about everything from voting in the Asian American community to um, like the educational system in America. I mean, none of it was, not all of it was related to Indian Americans, but I would just write a column. Um, I participated in a couple of these like New York Times summer reading contests. Um, I, you know, wrote speeches for different organizations and things like that. Um, and I just, I, I loved it. It was like the most fun part of some of my best memories are linked to my writing. Um, when I got to college, I didn't, I comped, um, or I, I, I was in the process of joining the Harvard political review. I ended up writing one piece for them freshman year and one piece for them senior year. Um, but I, I still knew in the back of my mind, I loved it. And the way I pursued it more in college was I, I, was fortunate enough to spend a summer working abroad in Argentina. I wrote blog posts about my time there. Um, I had the opportunity to travel to Israel and Palestine, did a reflective writing with respect to that experience. And so again, writing similarly was still tied to a lot of these positive experiences. And it was a, it was very cathartic for me in terms of being, I'm a very sentimental person. So being able to capture it through writing was something that was also very powerful. Um, so that was the baseline interest. I think as I got older and older and went through markets or went through working in finance, 
I also realized, hey, I really enjoy reading business views. I love how this is curated. I love that this is something that I can understand. Um, Andrew Ross Sorkin is one of my favorite journalists of all time. He's like, has this beautiful combination of being able to write really well. And it's about like business and financial policy, which I, is more interesting than I sound, than it sounds, I promise. Um, so I, I think that's, that's the core of what it's in. From a bigger picture perspective, I think for me, part of the reason I was drawn away from finance was when I woke up every day, I didn't know who I was impacting or what it it wasn't fulfilling enough for me. And I know I said earlier that I've told a lot of my friends, Hey, what you're doing now is a means to an end. I, I, with, I didn't know what that end was going to be for me. It was starting to look like maybe it would be finance and investing in the long term, which I might track back to again, but I was like, what is the fulfilling component here? Like, am I providing capital to underrepresented founders? Am I, you know, I, I, I couldn't get there. Um, and media to me has not been that. I know a lot of people have qualms with the media, especially in the current age. I think media is such a powerful resource. I think it really like can, has the power to contribute value to the world. It's going through this very unique evolution right now. Um, and to me, that was exciting. I was like, I see a way to add value here, do something that I'm passionate about. Um, and do something that could actually potentially be impactful to the world at large um, in the longer longer context of my life and career. So that was a very long-winded answer as to why why media is something that I've been drawn to for a very long time. No, no, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, And so after finance, you sort of transitioned into um, working at a place called Paperwork Studios. So can you tell me more about what the place is, what the company is, what do you guys do, and any cool projects that you've been working on or worked on that you can share with us? Yeah, absolutely. So um, navigating the job market has been, is its own challenge in the middle of a pandemic, but I was fortunate enough to um, land this opportunity with Paperwork Studios. It's a very early stage media startup. Uh, We're dedicated to building uh, B2B newsletters for decision makers in very niche spaces. So what that basically means is creating publications that are mission critical for people that are hyper-specialized. So there's certain publications like, you know, the, the hedge fund law report which is exactly what it sounds like It's for hedge fund lawyers. It's very specific. Traditional news media doesn't cover it, um, but they get this publication on their desks every day or every week to help inform their work. So that's kind of what we're in the business of doing. In terms of my projects over the past couple of months has been looking into what those potential spaces could be of where we create and curate newsletters. That's been one of the fun parts of getting to bring in my background in finance is that's obviously a space that we're looking in. I find market news very fascinating. So getting to like sit on the media side of an industry that I really like, I think is me finding my sweet spot. Um, So yeah, it's going to be an exciting journey ahead and we'll see how things trend, but um, it's been a really great team to work with. And um, I've already learned so much and feel really fortunate to have found an opportunity that very beautifully combines a lot of my interests. Um, I think the other thing that I I also wanted to touch on in the previous question that I didn't, um, and, and with respect to even my work at Paperwork Now, I think the other draw of media is I love talking to people. Um, I think it's one of the best ways to learn. I think that's why some of my best writing has come from my experiences in other countries because I meet people that are so different from me and get exposure to cultures that are not ones I'm otherwise familiar with. And um, having the opportunity to write and be in the media space is very conducive to you having conversations with people who are different from you and with these different spaces, you do Q and A's or you talk to them. My senior year, I took um, an intro to journalism class with Jill Abramson, who's the former editor, uh, former executive editor of the New York times. And I mean, it was such a cool class. And my final project um, was a long form investigative piece about veterans at Harvard, because I had a good friend who um, had served in um, the military in his, in his country. And so it's something that I'd become a little bit exposed to then. And I was like, wow, there's all these veterans at Harvard. Actually, it's not that big of a school. I don't even know a ton of them ended up writing a piece about them, um, which was 
really cool. And I, I met six amazing guys that I wouldn't have otherwise met. So I think that's also the draw of media and also the draw of the startup that I'm working at now is because we're looking at all these different spaces, I get to learn about all these cool different things on a daily basis. I feel way less siloed. Um, and as someone that like loves learning and consuming information about different things, that's one of my favorite things to do. And also like how was that, was that transition and how was it like when you first started working at paperwork? Um, I know you were probably doing stuff remotely, but did you like immediate, immediately feel right at home or like, did you feel like, oh, coming from finance, like this is sort of a different skill set. Like this is just completely different. It was very different, not just for the sake of being remote. I mean, (laughs) remote is just so odd when like, I feel like I know my coworkers so well. And then we're like, we've actually never been in the same room together, um, which is very bizarre. But finance is a very structured industry. The roles are very structured. There's a very clear delineation of who's doing what, what their responsibilities are, what needs to get done between A, B, and C. And those were most of the roles that I held even through my college internship. So having that sort of structure is something I'm very used to. Um, working at a startup is completely not like that. Um, and I love it. I love that it's entrepreneurial. I love that there's these ad hoc projects that kind of come up out of nowhere and that you get this beautiful flexibility in terms of the parts of the, your brain that you're able to stretch. Um, so a very different experience with respect to that. And I think it depends on your preference. I think I've just realized that like, I'm someone that likes to break from structure. I think I've definitely benefited from having structure. I'm glad that that's where I started my real world experience because it teaches you a lot about just like office norms and how to interact with people that are more senior or junior to you and and just basic things like how to manage your inbox um, and and properly write a document so that everyone everyone can understand and synthesize it very clearly. But um, I'm glad the shift is one that I've definitely appreciated with respect to that. And do you feel any different um, working in media versus finance, like in terms of how fulfilled you are, um, the workplace environment and like in any other way? Yeah, I think you're comparing like... (laughs) apples to like dogs it's it's, uh it's it's such a stark compare you just can't compare the two in in, i mean some people will say there are there are comparisons and i think some of the comparisons are like it's you know it's still very work hard play hard um i think that's how both media and finance are it's it's getting deep in the weeds but also being able to take a big picture lens um it's it's all about cultivating relationships and i think you could say this about a lot of industries but i think those two are particular or those couple are particularly unique to finance and media in terms of workplace environment i think i mean i'm just working on a much smaller team the finance or firm that i was at we had upwards of 200 people um at the firm you know just 90 on on the main investment team that i was on so um very different environment. Um, I think you also have to look at it in terms of, I think finance is a very stalwart industry. Again, they're, they're progressing a ton, but I think they're also, you know, they've done things a certain way for a very long time. And so breaking out of these bounds and structure is not as it's not as it's not even not as welcome it's just not as necessary like there's a way to do things it gets the job done um and and that's why it's such a high you know high performing industry i think media you know almost expects you to do that and it's also the fact that the industry is going through a crazy evolution right now i mean we're seeing local news unfortunately has completely dwindled over the past several years with google and facebook and these ad giants taking over and you have the, you know, the major outlets like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times that are thriving, but there is still a bit of struggle. You know, we're hearing every day about how the Atlantic or the Vice is, they're having layoffs um, and things like that. So being part of an industry that's going through an evolution and requires that change is very different on the whole. Um, so, I, and I think that contributes to how you operate in the workplace as well. But do you feel like you're going to continue to pursue media or do you feel like, oh, maybe there is a chance I'll go back to finance or like pursue completely like something completely different? Yeah, it's also a great question. 
I think I'm in media for the, for the near term, honestly. I mean, I, I made the leap and it's one I intend to stick to and I, I'm excited about what I'm doing for sure. I will say, I do think investing is fascinating. That, that's what I was doing when I was in private equity. I think if I were ever to go back to investing, it would be early stage. I think venture capital is a place where you get a little bit closer to this tech media feel. I think there's a it feels like there's a grander opportunity to have direct impact on day one in terms of, like I said, you can, you know, work with other female founders or invest in underrepresented founders or, you know, go specific in terms of investing in a media, in an industry that you really care about, which for me would very probably be media. So I never rule anything out. I'm, I'm too young to do that. But I think, um, I, I think for me, a lot of the transition from finance to media was not even just about, the industry, but it's going from the seat of investor to operator. I think investing is great. I think it's an experience that's helped a ton when you have some operational experience. You have the insight into what it means to work at and run a company, whether by working with people around you or doing it yourself. And so that's something that I want to gain more insight into. I'm blessed that I'm able to do it in a space that I'm excited about. Um, But so I think that's what I'd want to do um, over the next couple of years. And then, you know, maybe potentially in the future, take up investing on the side or, or full time. I'm not, I'm not sure, but that's how I look at it. No, that's really great. And I'm really excited to see like all the cool projects that you're going to pursue in the future. Um, I think now we can move on to talking about South Asian trailblazers, which is super exciting. Um, and South Asian trailblazers is sort of this like media, podcast, newsletter, mashup collective that you've created. Um, but you can probably say it in more, uh, in more detail. So can you explain what this collective is? Yeah, absolutely. So Trailblazers is a content platform dedicated to trailblazing by and for South Asians. And so the products and content offerings that we currently have are a bi-monthly newsletter, which I write, as I mentioned before, I love writing. It's something that I wanted to get back into. And so um, the newsletter covers an interview that's also in the, comes out in the format of a podcast. And it also includes local news happenings that are relevant to South Asians. So one week I talked about Kamala Harris being named Biden's VP candidate all the way to, you know, goings on with what's happening in South Asia with respect to the pandemic. The inspiration behind the platform is interesting. I, when I, since high school, um, not even, since I was a kid, I've been very immersed in the South Asian community. When my parents moved to Atlanta, which is where I'm from, they were looking to find a piece of home and a lot of our family members moved down here and then we started to get to know a bunch of other Indian Americans and other South Asians and formed this pretty robust community. So I grew up attending all the festivals, like going to like our temple, uh, going to all these cultural celebrations. So I, I went to an Indian dance academy for the major part of my adolescence. So it's something that's always been a part of my life. In high school, that translated to me running our South Asian Students Association. In college, that translated to me becoming a frost rep and then cultural chair. And then I ran our South Asian Association at Harvard as well. So it's always been something that my life and identity and work is really rooted in. My senior year, as I stepped back from leadership, I was like, dang, like, how do I maintain this connection even as I, as I you know, step down from leadership and move forward in life? And again, finding this passion for content seemed like a really easy way to do it. So I started a podcast called The Pioneers with one of my best friends, Kailash, at the time. Um, and we had this, we did it as actually part of a class um, and created this podcast interviewing cool South Asians. We recently wrapped that project up and I decided that it's still something that I'm super interested in. Um, I wanted to create this focus on South Asians that are rising stars in their careers across a variety of industries. I mean, I've interviewed New York Times journalists, all the way to actresses and directors, um, offering that variety to really showcase to our generation, here's what the South Asians are doing. Like, here's what you could be doing. Um, and, and here are some role models for you to look up to, some inspiration for there to be there. Um, getting to do it through content is just a plus for me. I love not just writing, but podcasting. So um, I think the, that that's 
that's really the mission behind it. Um, I have an amazing team working alongside me um, on social media and, and other things like that um, to help grow the platform. So we're hoping that we can really be a major content platform for people to derive inspiration and, and find leaders and innovators to look up to within the diaspora. And I know that this, like, this is such a huge project that I know you must have been working on it for a while. So can you take me through like the creative process of making like such a big platform like this? And also um, you, you kind of mentioned some people that you were, uh, you know, the, t- the kinds of people that you were uh, interviewing for the podcast, but any, also like any projects that you've been working on or are planning to release soon that you can share? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of the creative process, I think having the benefit of operated between, within South Asian communities before, it's something that's organizationally was like, okay, I know what I want to do. Okay. Kind of just trailblazing I think in terms of, I wanted to showcase not just the people, but the work that's being done in this community, because, you know, we're, we're becoming in terms of population size, we're growing, but in terms of our presence, we're also growing. Um, so a lot of the ideation there was like, again, because I work in media now, one of the big things and hot new things in media is newsletters. I was like, this is a great way to, for me to write and, and hopefully to provide content that's valuable to um, other young South Asians and, and other members of the diaspora. Podcasting, again, kind of a natural route because it's something that I became familiar with in college. And as I'm sure you know, it, it's something that requires, there's a little bit of a learning curve in terms of how to do it, how to go through the editing process. And I was like, I spend so much time learning that and, and, and going through that, that it, it doesn't make sense for me to just give up that content avenue. Um, so that became like a natural disposition for me to pursue. In terms of building out the rest of the platform, it's been, it's a work in progress. Um, I think if you ask me six from, months from now, the answer will probably be different. But the ultimate goal is to really cultivate a community of individuals who want to, you know, want to communicate and interface with other South Asians, want to be a part of this community to grow and learn from one another and to get inspired. And I think we've seen a lot of communities in the U.S. and beyond organize in this way, um, really come together through these different avenues and platforms. And I hope that content is kind of the first avenue to bring people together. And then the next step is really cultivating a community where like I said, there's communication between people and it's something that a lot of people want to be a part of because they have the opportunity to learn, grow and be inspired by it. That's really cool. Yeah. Everyone like follow South Asian trailblazers on Instagram, like sign up for their newsletter. Um, I'll allow you, Simi, to to share more um, and plug that one last time at the end. Um, Is there, are there any other things you want to talk about? Any other questions? Because I think we covered basically all the questions that I put except for the the last rapid fire question set. Um, nothing for me. If you have anything, happy to answer, but nothing on my end. Okay. Okay. I think we're good then. I'll move on to the rapid fire questions if you're okay with that. Yeah. Okay. There'll just be four quick casual ones just so the listeners can get to know you in a different context. So are you ready for these? Oh gosh. Yes. Okay. They should, they, they shouldn't be too hard. <laughs> First, what's your favorite TV show? Oh man. That's a, that's a tough question. Oh man. Okay. You got to give me a second. I think I, this is probably not it, but it's really just what's top of mind right now because I was talking about it with someone. White Collar, I think, is just really well done. I love that it's – I love Matt Bomer. Um, I think it's a great storyline that has comedy and suspense. Um, I can't promise that's my favorite show, but that's what's coming to mind. I probably have, like, 20 I could name. <laughs> what is this show about? What is White Collar? It's basically this guy who is a former professional art thief who finally gets caught and he becomes a criminal informant for the FBI. Who And he's just like this brilliant guy who knows how all these art crimes tend to work and all the people in the underworld. And so it just follows his path to helping the FBI and being the CI. Um, 
and his relationship with this main FBI director. It's a really great show. I highly recommend everyone watch. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that seems super interesting. Okay, next question. If you had to eat one meal every day for the rest of your life, what would it be? Chocolate-covered strawberries. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good one. What's, what is your dream job? Oh, man. I don't know that I have a dream job. <laughs> I think it's the uh, the uh, perpetual question of what my rest of my life will look like. I think at my heart, I'm an entrepreneur. Um, I think that's where Trailblazers has come from, among other projects I've worked on over the years. I, I'm a self-starter. I like taking initiative. I think the dream job is, you know, being my own boss. Um, again, I don't know what that looks like. I don't even know what industry it'll be in, but I, I think, um, yeah, being an entrepreneur that, uh, that, uh, makes it big. Nice. Yes. CEO Simi. Let's go. <laughs> and final question. What is one piece of advice that you'd give to a woman of color or also specifically a South Asian woman of color in either the finance industry or the media industry. Also, you can give separate pieces of, of advice for both. Yeah, I think I have a kind of a general piece of advice. Um, I have a couple, actually. I think one, um, read and write as much as you can. And um, I, I just had a conversation about this with one of my podcast guests, actually, on Trailblazers. But in terms of reading... I have been so surprised across any of my work, any of the co-curricular things that I do to this day, how much something that I read in one sphere of my life impacts a conversation or value I'm able to add in another sphere of life. And it is 99% of the time because I got a New York Times notification on my phone about an article that seemed remotely interesting and I just sat there and read it. It You don't have to you know, definitely read books if you can and want, if that's too much of a commitment for you. I think read the news, sign up to some of these newsletters and, and just get the daily, even if it's not necessarily pertinent to your field, because I personally just find it really fulfilling, but I've also found that it makes it a, makes me able to really participate and contribute in a lot of these spaces that I'm a part of. I also encourage people to write. And this is the conversation I, like I said, I was having with someone I think women and women of color need to get used to taking up space. And it's not just about speaking up in the meeting, but it's about putting your voice out there, writing, producing. You know, when I was talking with her, she was like, post something on Twitter. Um, really, yeah, really take the opportunity to, to, to claim your voice. Um, so when, when I say writing, I, I really mean speaking and, and putting your voice into the sphere. Do not be afraid to speak up the opinion that you have is valuable. It is a unique perspective. Nine times out of 10, it's a perspective that someone else will not be able to have a lot of the time. So that is, that is my, my point of encouragement. The last thing I will say is um, have passion projects. I have found so much fulfillment from being a part, continuing to be a part of organizations outside my work. I'm part of the Harvard Asian Alumni Association. I was a class marshal for my class. So I stay connected to the class community. Um, women in finance networks. I, you know, I do all these different trailblazers, obviously. Um, it, it keeps you fulfilled. It keeps you going. And, um, I think, it, and it doesn't have to be like a crazy passion project. Like maybe for you, it's like quilting. I don't know. Um, but I, I keep those up. I know work and things can, can start to take over your life, but it's so important to kind of be able to take that step back. I think if anything this year has taught us that, um, is, is to really have the ability to take a step back. For me personally, I know 2020 has been a crazy year, but I think it was in some ways life's way of telling me that I was just moving too fast and doing too much. And I think this is really, this year really forced me to recenter and, and reorganize my thoughts about what are my passion projects? What is it that I actually meaningfully want to spend time on? Um, and that has just made for such a much more fulfilling life experience. So I highly encourage, um, especially women and women of color to do that as, as they navigate their next steps in their lives. Thank you so much. Those were such great um, piece of advice. And I think those were so helpful. Um, last thing before you go, Simi, do you want to plug any projects um, 
you know, regarding South Asian trailblazers, stuff that you're working on? Where can people reach out to you if they have any questions? Where can people learn more about South Asian trailblazers, subscribe to your newsletter, just like plug everything? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So if I'm always happy to be a resource for people, I am by no means an expert on any of the things that I've talked about, but if I can be useful to someone as they're navigating their own paths or have questions, um, feel free to reach out to me at my email at simishaw97 at gmail.com. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn or Twitter and you know, shoot me a message and, and I promise I'll get back to you. In terms of South Asian Trailblazers, please subscribe to our newsletter. You can find it at trailblazers.substack.com. We're also on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook at South Asian Trailblazers. So come follow us there. Um, check out our podcast and all the other content we're putting out. Um, our team is doing an awesome job and we'd uh, love for you to check it out. Awesome. Yeah. I will also put a link to the uh, Trailblazers newsletter um, website so that people can subscribe and also to the social media as well. So people can uh, find that really easily. Um, but thank you so much, Simi. That was so helpful. Such a great episode. Like I, it's just super fascinating to learn more about your thoughts and your experiences in such different spaces. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me. I think the work that you're doing is awesome. I notice even the work you're doing in, in the context of your pivot and, and how thoughtfully you're thinking about Asian voices and Asian plus voices. So really appreciate the work that you're doing. And I think this is an awesome endeavor and I can't wait to see what you do next. So thank you so much for having me on. Hey everyone, it's Angel Rena here. Thank you so much for listening to episode 22 with Simi. Um, I just wanted to reiterate and reemphasize that Simi is just a really amazing person and resource. So honestly, like if you have any questions about like what it was like to be a South Asian woman in finance or, you know, the work that she's involved in in media or even like what it was like to transition from this like relatively stable industry to something completely different, please do not hesitate to reach out to her um, via her email that she shared or on her social media. Um, and like I mentioned at the beginning, in the beginning of this episode, and also I talked a little bit about this at the end of the last episode, but this is actually the season finale, the season one finale of Homecoming. So yeah. It's not the finale finale, so don't worry. There will be future uh, seasons for sure. Um, but yeah, like this has been an amazing season, an amazing time of starting this podcast, seeing how it's grown, seeing how I've grown um, throughout this entire summer, uh, working on Homecoming. I mean, we have, what, 22 episodes, 27 guests, like from across the Asian diaspora, um, I mean, there are definitely a bunch, a, a ton of eth ethnicities that I didn't cover, a, a bunch of different identity groups that I haven't represented yet. Um, but yeah, I, I'm going to be talking about this a little bit more. Um, I will actually be doing a season recap um, for next week before I like fully wrap up the season. Um, so definitely check out you know, look out for that uh, next Saturday. I'll be releasing that. Um, and in that recap, I'll just be talking about, you know, what this season entailed, basically, um, my plans for season two, and what I'll be doing during this, like, two to three month break in between the two seasons, um, some goals that I've sort of reevaluated for homecoming. Um, I'll also be debriefing and just like explaining I guess a lot of my feelings because I think you know I think for a lot of people out there who have something like a podcast or you know like for example I'm, I'm just saying for example like a YouTube channel or you know even just school like we're just so dependent and tied to this routine of like daily tasks that I don't think we can really step back and sort of pause and really process a lot of our feelings. And so I think 
with homecoming at least, I have been super tied to the fact that I have to post every Saturday. And it, and it feels like, I don't know, it, it, I don't think it necessarily allows me or gives me the opportunity to um, like process every single one of my thoughts and feelings about what's happening in the outside, like in the world in general, you know what I mean? Um, like this time of COVID and just this, you know, this resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement in media and in a lot in 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 a lot of non-Black folks' minds, um, and just like COVID nineteen in general, I feel like this entire time. And these past few months have just been so tinged and overwhelmed by loss. Yet everything is so go, go, go. Like because the school has started, people are getting back into the routine. People have started like working again in in many places. So yeah, I think next week in the recap, I'll be talking a little bit more about my feelings um, about loss. Um, the loss of very important figures, everyday loss due to COVID-19, um, all these like losses of Black life, just like so many different things that I'll try to touch on for next week's recap episode. I mean, I'll try to also keep it not too long, you know. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to stress that not everything that people are feeling and thinking are, is put on social media. Um, so yeah, but thank you so much for listening to this episode and thank you so, so much for supporting Homecoming. Um, this has been such an amazing, amazing journey and I'm so excited to continue it in the future and continue growing Homecoming and continuing to, um, provide you all with, um, Asian diasporic, uh, stories and experiences and insights. So yeah, thank you guys again for listening to this episode and I will see you all next week for the recap.